Hey everybody, my name is Pej. We come on every single Tuesday, right around noontime. I always have special guests in the recovery world. We talk about anything and everything that's recovery related or lack thereof. Welcome to Pej's Recovery Corner. Welcome to Pej's Recovery Corner. Did you see, I, I was gonna unload right there, but I said it nice and calmly because we're in a meditative state today. I'm here today with my dear, 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 dear friend, Kylan Walker. We've been friends for a bunch of years. And, um, and we've talked about having you on here for a while, and I'm so happy that you're here today. Um, welcome to the corner, Kylan. Thank you so much, Pej, Pejji Pej, Pejmon. <laughs> it's an today, honor to be here. I'm excited. It's an honor to have you, truly. You're, you're a, an amazing human being. I, and I, some people don't like the word amazing, but I love, like, when you're amazing, you're fucking amazing, and you're amazing. So it's, it's good to have you here today. We've um, talked about having you on here for a while now. I kind of lagged on scheduling you, but it's good, good, good. And today you, we decided that the topic was going to be just simple. It's straight yeah. up mindfulness. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. First and foremost, what I want to do is kind of delve into the past and see who you are, where you were raised, how it was, what it was that made you actually get into doing what you ended up doing throughout mm -hmm. your life and then um, who you are now. So as far as growing up, where were you born? So I was born in Anaheim. Anaheim, California? We have a slang for it. We have a slang for it and a crime. Yeah. Um, so was it Anaheim or Anaheim Hills? So it was off La Palma. I mean, yeah, like Anna crime. Anagram. Mm -hmm. That was like when it was before Disneyland cleaned up the neighborhood. Yeah, you know, I I don't really know what it was like then, but I do know that um, we moved further inland to to Diamond Bar was where my parents' first apartment was. So we lived in Diamond Bar and then Chino Hills, and then at five or six, my parents. Uh, divorce separated and um, they both came into Orange County and I've been in various parts of Orange County ever since. Okay. And uh, when you moved, <clears throat> was there any brothers or sisters, any siblings or anything like that? Yeah. So I have one brother who's two and a half years younger than me. Um, you may have met him actually once. And um, I have two other half brothers um, with my mom and her second husband. Mm -hmm. So three brothers. Gotcha. And, and growing up, where did you end up going to high school? I went to Villa Park High School. Okay. Are you familiar with Villa Park? And that was because you lived in Anaheim? Is that why? Or Diamond no. Bar? No, at that point, um, my dad was living in Orange and my mom was in Yorba Linda. And mm -hmm. I was just starting high school. That was when I was starting to drink and things like that. And so um, my dad is still an active alcoholic. And so I was able to do what I wanted to do, you know, when I lived with my dad. And so I moved in with him. I stopped the back and forth between the parents and uh, started my, my drinking career. Ah, that's what I was going to get to. So was this in high school where you first started drinking? Yeah, my first drink was actually, um, I'll give my age away. Uh, it was December 31st, 1999. So I don't know if you remember Y2K, what they thought was going to happen uh -huh. when like, I don't, the Mayans or whatever, but my stepmom um, for our party, we had... Um, we had the whole food stash, the generator in the garage. We had the bags of water and stuff because she thought the world was going to end. Because we're bunkering so up. You're we were bunkering, bunkering up, yeah. but we were also partying for the end of the world. And so my parents were like, sure, yeah, you can you can start to partake. And, um, and I was felt in the house. Get ready for, for the party. Like We're going to party like it's 1999. Yeah. And I was 13. And I remember me and my girlfriends, we got some, some dresses from forever 21 and we all matched and, and we were like super excited to be, you know, part of the adults and, and get to drink champagne with them for new year's Eve. It was, it was the most exciting thing ever. 
and then nothing happened. The world still just revolved. Everything was fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the world the world kept going. <laughs> it hit January first, and life continued. But I'd um, I'd tasted alcohol, and so my world had forever changed. So, at thirteen, this kind of the drinking career sort of started. But then, what happened? Like, was this a regular occurrence? Then, were you drinking on weekends? Were you drinking more regularly, like on the weekdays? Two? I mean, yeah. I mean, from the beginning, I I really liked to drink, and at home, it was going on every day. You know, um, my parents would drink every night with dinner. That was that was always there, and so I remember you know, friends were, and, um, they would see how my parents would, you know, act every single day. And it's not like they would necessarily get drunk and wasted every night, but alcohol would always be there. And I remember a friend saying to me, um, it's, it's weird that your parents drink every day. And I was like, Oh, mm-hmm. it is like, I didn't, I didn't know anything different. That's just kind of how life was for me. And so, you know, I, I thought it was normal to, to drink on the weekends. It's like if you didn't have, you know, school and, and there wasn't a reason to not be drinking, I didn't really see why we wouldn't. And I kind of took that to always the next level. You know, I, I liked to kind of see how much I could drink and still get away with driving. Like there was something thrilling to me about seeing what I could get away with. And, um, you know, with my parents drinking and it kind of always being around and I just, I, I took it as far as I could, you know, and I liked to, um, I like to have fun. I like to let loose and alcohol really gave me this break from, I have generalized anxiety and, and, my mom's had it, my grandma's had it. And so getting to have a break from the noise in my head, it, it was, it was awesome. And mm. I was cool. And yeah. So drinking and driving, did you say you've ever had DUIs or did you ever get a DUI? No. Did you, did no. you think that you, you drove better when you were drinking or at least did you think that at the time? <laughs> oh, I, I didn't think I was a better driver. I just thought I was exceptionally good at drinking and driving. Did you ever yeah. drive with one hand over your eye to balance the road? No, but I've definitely driven long distances while blacked out. I've lost my car. Um, I've, <sighs> I don't think I ever actually, no, I did. I, cra- I crashed it a couple times, but. Um, crashed into what? I was, <laughs> I was driving to therapy once with open container and I, hit a mom with her two kids in the car. And uh, it wasn't a serious accident. It was just like a little bump. But um, somehow, I don't know how I managed to do it, but I always managed to leave before cops were called. I think I had like this, you know, soothing reassurance and I exchanged information and I, you know, stayed relatively calm and assured that the situation was fine. And and then, you know, went on my way. But I remember at the time, like being really terrified and like trying to shove the empty at that time I was drinking boxes of wine. And so like trying to shove the boxes like under the seats of my car, because I, I was really worried about, you know, getting caught, but no, I, I never did. And never got caught. No, I drank for 16 years and I was driving for uh, 13 of those. And I, yeah, no, I never got caught. It's amazing. Quite amazing. Mm-hmm. So during, when did alcohol actually really become a problem for you in your life? Um, I think I started to realize that it was a problem for me when I was in my early to mid twenties. And I, I realized that I wasn't able to go a night without it. You know, like I would, I would say to myself that I wanted to just not drink every day. You know, it was getting expensive and um, I didn't like this feeling like something else had like 
a grip on me. And I wanted to just be able to not drink sometimes because it seemed like other people could do that, you know? And then somehow I would always manage to, um, I believed at the time, I would convince myself that I didn't really want to take a break from drinking and that, that, nah, it's okay if I don't. And I'm just going to go ahead and keep drinking tonight anyway. But kind of having that back and forth where I would change my mind and also recognizing I'm not able to go a day without drinking was where I started to think that that maybe um, there was something unusual about my drinking. And from there, you know, the more I got this anxiety about wanting to like have a day off drinking or not mm -hmm. drink as much, it seemed the more my drinking would accelerate. And mm -hmm. then I'm bringing it to work. I'm I'm drinking while driving in the car because I couldn't even wait till I got home. You know, like I needed to start drinking as soon as I got in the car and I would, I would be driving and I would be like drinking and looking around and wondering like, could someone call the cops on me? Like I'd probably drive off faster than they'd be able to catch up to me. And, and just like having these conversations, but feeling very much at the time, like I am in so much trouble with being completely gripped by alcohol and needing to drink it so rapidly and um, so impulsively and so quickly and um, not being able to kind of postpone that time from when I'm starting to think about it to the time that I'm actually drinking. Like it had to be like immediate, you know, there was, there was nothing I could do to kind of create some space between myself and that compulsive need to drink. And it, if it was, it was really freaky, you know, it was really freaky. Hmm. Any drugs ever? You know, I, um, I tried smoking weed. I didn't really like it that much. And by the time I started to get, you know, towards college age and experimental, my brother was already hooked on, um, prescription pills and mm -hmm. he was buying, um, off of Craigslist and he was, um, actually there's a story of, of him. He wrote a book about it too. Um, he disguised himself as an FDA agent and he got a clipboard and started walking around to old folks homes and he would knock on their door and say that he, that the FDA was doing a recycling program and that people could, um, dispose for free of their old pharmaceuticals and that they would clear them away. And, and no way. Yeah. That is some creative shit. Yeah. Oh my God. Isn't that amazing? It's brilliant. And, and he's like dope sick at the time sweating. Like, I mean, you know, dope sick and disguised as an FDA agent and, and getting what he's getting is dope. Free. Because you I know lots of them old folks be having plenty of leftover stuff. Yeah. This is yeah. amazing. Yeah. And so my brother I'm glad, is I'm like, to give him props. Like that, I know. that's like that's I know. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So like my brother's obviously getting into this like weird stuff. So along with that creativity, on the other side is an equal amount of insanity, you know? And so I was watching my brother go down that path with drugs and I was like, um, yeah, you don't, don't want to be, a, you don't want to do the drugs. Like you didn't. Yeah. Like I remember I got prescribed, um, some pills, Percocet and other stuff, um, you know, for like surgeries or whatever. And I remember really liking the feeling and I knew already how addicted I was to alcohol. And so I just, I, I didn't want to kind of add more insult to injury. You know, meanwhile, I've, you know, shared with you that I've suffered with, or I've had eating disorders, bulimia and anorexia ever since I was, you know, I can't even remember ever having like a truly normal relationship with food that wasn't like managed by spirituality in my recovery. Um, but, you know, that was going on, the alcoholism was going on. And so I, I didn't really get into the drug thing. My brother you know, it was heroin and, um, he's 
five and a half years clean now, but mm. um, yeah, watching that whole situation kind of spared me of going down the, the drug route. That makes me happy to hear that he's sober, mm -hmm. clean, if you will. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So it's good that you brought up the, the eating disorder part. You said you've been doing that for a long time, obviously with, with alcoholism kind of taking its form at a very young age. I mean, in your early adolescence, you, you mentioned when did the eating disorder take place? Like when did that first start and how did it start? Do you remember? So, you know, eating disorders are a little bit different because, you know, there isn't really a clear black and white. We all have to eat. We have to eat to live. Um, for me, the eating gets disordered when I'm starting to eat for reasons other than to nourish my body. So, you know, when I started trying to control my food or trying to control my body size, that was not until... Um, after some sexual abuse at 16 and that, um, that for me actually is way more addictive than the, the drinking ever was. I think one of the reasons I, you know, it, tried to enjoy drinking alcohol as much as I was, is it, it kind of distracted me from this nonstop self-loathing about my body, about my weight, about, trying to play this control game with food, that was absolutely incessant and relentless. So do you think that you were, um, as far as the eating disorder was going, were you purging? Is that what you were doing? Or mm -hmm. Yeah, I was restricting and binging and purging. There's a spectrum and I, I fell at one point on every part of that spectrum, exercise, um, mm -hmm. all of it, yeah. All of it. So the exercise was like intensive to the point of anorexia. Is that what was happening? Yeah. So exercise is actually sometimes used as a form of purging and, mm -hmm. um, you know, eating disorders have now all these different subclassifications where there's anorexia that's purely the restrictive type. And then there's anorexia with binging and purging. Um, there's bulimia nervosa, um, and, and so there's kind of different categories of, of the disease, but really, you know, for me, there was always compensatory behaviors to go along with overeating, um, mm -hmm. and then restricting to try to prevent the binging. And it's this like cycle that continues to go round and round. Do you think that, cause you said that it was more addictive, the, the eating disorder than the actual alcoholism, uh, do you? You, you also brought up sexual trauma and I'm not, I don't want to go deep into that, but do you think that you were doing that to alleviate and numb out the pain that you may have been feeling as a result of the trauma that you had endured? Definitely. You know, um, I, I found out later that um, compulsive eating was in my family. And so I do think that there's a genetic component to that. I don't think that that means if there's the genetic component that, a person will develop the disorder, but um, I did have the genetic component, you know, plus there were some psychological factors, you know, that, that, that went into it. And then, you know, the, the social stuff that, that went on, it was like kind of everything came, came together to like have this Petri dish breed, Petri dish breeding ground for, mm -hmm for the behaviors to really start, you know? And I think for me, what, what the trauma essentially taught me was that my body is in a safe place to be. And mm -hmm. so as much as I could be disconnected from my body, um, that was where I preferred at the time. Mm -hmm. so I, I love, I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying hearing this because you, you, the way that you speak about it is so eloquent and so, you articulate your words so well and describe, you, you paint a picture of like what it was like for mm -hmm. you. And it, it must have been a lot of pain going on mentally, physically, emotionally, you know, all of it. Yeah. And, spirit, and spiritually too, obviously. Yeah. There's just like spiritual bankruptcy going on within. Like how can you even be a whole human being? Hence the anxiety that you said you were often having so much of. And I believe that that happens a lot. I see a lot of people that come into the treatment space that have um, 
eating disorders, if you will, mm -hmm. but not always as a primary. Sometimes there's other addictions that they've taken on in their life, but you knew mm -hmm. like it may have stemmed from that, like the mm -hmm. alcoholism or addiction might have been something that happened more uh, down the line, but the onset was definitely, you know, some kind of disorders that, such as eating disorders. But, um, and there's a lot, there, often there's sexual trauma that's attached to it, obviously, too. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people in the recovery space that we know and see that if you walk into a room, you never really know how much of them have had that trauma. So mm -hmm. um, we, we have to always remember that um, people are carrying a lot of pain around that they often want to take to the grave with them. And so yeah. a lot of their behaviors and actions um, are probably happening as a result of uh, certain things that they've gone through throughout their past that now they're either not reliving it, but often like re-encountering or creating new encounters for themselves that uh, they just behave a certain way. It's, it's behavioral. It's like an, it's, it's an issue. And if that stuff doesn't get addressed, then how can you really be whole? So you, at what age did you actually decide, I want to get help for it all, for everything? Oh, um, that decision was made for me. I, How's that? Um, you know, I remember I was in college and I, I lost a significant amount of weight in that phase of the eating disorder and, and drinking. And, um, my parents told me that, uh, it was, it was treatment and help or, um, you know, stop going to college, like, just like, forget it because you're going to kill yourself. You know, like my, my, the insanity, the unmanageability of my life was so apparent. So I went for a short time into a treatment program at that point, I was 19. And was it for, for eating disorders or for something else? It was for eating disorders. I, um, my alcoholism hadn't quite gotten to that daily drinking point yet. Mm -hmm. Um, but I wasn't ready. You know, I wasn't ready, but what I was introduced to is a 12 step program for that specific issue. Right. And so that like kind of planted a little seed, mm -hmm. you know, fast forward a few years and there was this convergence between the drinking, the eating disorder and, um, and I was unable to work. I was, I just couldn't hold it all together. And mm -hmm. I remember quitting my job. And at the time I was certain that it was everyone else's fault, you know, that I was the way that I was. And I would sit at home with all my goodies of whatever kind. And I would watch the Kardashians and I would um, kind of use that to feel like, okay, well, you know, they're different. I'm different. We're all different. And, you know, it's, it's cool. And, uh, so, and what so, so what happened was, um, I was seeing a therapist at the time and this was around the time that I hit the, the mom with the minivan and her kids. And I, um, I, I walked into the therapist's office one day and she said, like, in so many words, like you, you're way too much for my level of care that I can offer you. Like where you're at right now needs much more help than like this. You, she could tell that you had just lost a crazy amount of weight. Was that what it was? Yeah. Maybe she smelled the alcohol because I was getting like good, good and drunk before therapy sessions. Um, I Lovely. mean, there wasn't anything I could do without being, more or less inebriated at that point. And sure, did she know before that you were drunk, that you were inebriated in, in her sessions? We never talked about it. She couldn't smell that shit. <laughs> Come on. You must've been drinking like the stuff that doesn't stay on your breath. Were you drinking gin or something like that? No. Um, <laughs> I, I was a big wino. I was a big wino. So um, I can't imagine that she couldn't smell it. Yeah. Um, I remember going on vacation one time and there was so much sugar in my, I just got destroyed by mosquitoes because like I had so from the wine, like so much like sugar in my body, the hangovers were awful too. It was a right. miserable time. Anyway, I, um, I ended up getting a first class letter to my house from that therapist saying, um, I can't see you. You need a higher level of care. And so I, I, 
proceeded to drink more and I called my family and said, you know, can you believe this lady is firing me as a client? And, you know, the next day I had another intake appointment to a treatment center mm. and I went to it and, you know, that was treatment center number two. I think there were four more stays with treatment centers. All um, for eating disorders or for substance abuse too? Uh, mo they were mostly dual, dual diagnosis, um, okay. but always definitely addressing the eating disorder. Definitely. Mm -hmm. I think if I had gone to a treatment center that was not prepared for eating disorders, I, I, pr I probably would get kicked out really quickly um, at that point. Um, but I ended up being in treatment for the, better part of two whole years. I think with the exception of like 10 days that I would leave treatment, drink immediately, and then, you know, end up back in treatment a couple days later. Wow. Didn't know about all this stuff. It's it's good um, to learn about it. I mean, I know you very well, but it's always nice to learn and hear somebody's story and see how it all went down. Because I do know that I met you I think I met you like in the beginning of your sobriety and you had come back from perhaps a relapse. Was that what it was? Yeah. And how old were you then? Late twenties. I think I was, no, I was 30. I was 31. I turned, I turned 31, um, nine days before my sober birthday. Yeah. And so you stayed sober since then. Actually, second um, of August will be four years. Okay. And I know you to be a person that takes a recovery very, very seriously. Yeah. And I, really, and I love that. I love that about you um, because I watch you shine and I, I mm -hmm. see who you are uh, in our community. You are well-respected, well-loved. Um, mm -hmm. You're altruistic. Uh, I see you working with many women. I also have worked in the workspace with you. I've worked in a center where I've watched you in action. I've watched you come in um, to do yoga mm -hmm. and be a yoga instructor. And, you know, I mean, all treatment centers typically have a yoga instructor, but I, I really, I believe that the, the clients in that particular center were vibing with you really well and they just loved you, you know? And, and, and so I, I've been a fan from afar, but also a friend up close too. And so it's been nice to watch your journey um, today you picked the topic of mindfulness and I want to know why that and, and, and how does one like yourself stay mindful and, and how do you teach it? Yeah. You know, I, I think mindfulness is a good topic because it's, it's really applicable for anybody, you know, in or out of recovery. And I think through mindfulness, um, like specifically, Mindfulness has been studied on people with drug addiction, people with depression, people with anxiety, and it has proven um, scientifically through research to be uh, a beneficial method for kind of reducing some of those uh, symptoms and increasing the likelihood of kind of staying in the present moment. And so I, I think Bill... Any, Am I allowed to talk about that? You can talk about whatever you want. This is up oh, to you. It doesn't okay. matter. I, I so think, like, just so Bill you know, if Wilson. you're about to talk about, yeah, if you're about to talk about Bill Wilson, a lot of motherfuckers don't talk about the fact that Bill had a lot of trauma himself too, as well as Bob, right? So, go yeah, ahead. but I think Sorry, you know, you whenever off. if whether it was him or whoever it was that came up with that slogan for Alcoholics Anonymous of mm -hmm. one day at a time, right? Um, they really knew what they were talking about because. Okay, we think that we're really good at multitasking. You know, we've mm -hmm. we're, we've got this ability to do this and to do that. But like, if we look at our brain, if we look at our bodies, technology and medicine have rapidly evolved, but our brains and our bodies have not. Mm -hmm. You know, and so some of the reasons that we're so stressed out and we're so ill and we're in so much chronic pain is because we don't sit and pay attention to what we're doing when we're doing it, and that essentially is the key to mindfulness is to really be exactly where you are. It doesn't mean that you always have to be Zen 
and you have to be humming and chanting. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness is simply paying attention to where you are and inviting in a lens of non-judgment, you know, to try to stay neutral about what you're doing at the time you're doing it. You brought up stress. Do you believe that stress is really a thing or is it a facade? Is it something that's self-created by the individual to the point where they think that they're under stress or can stress be overcome? Is it really not even real? I know it sounds, when I say that, I know it sounds um, like, come on, what is he talking about? But truth of the matter is like most of this, the stress that I feel that I've uh, encountered in my life is usually self-imposed. Like it's mm -hmm. stuff that I've, done or put myself in a position to where I think I can't handle a situation. And so I start freaking out and I'm worried about the future and the fear of the unknown and like, what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden the anxiety kicks in. And then all of a sudden, you know, once I want to like land, I go into this full on depressive mode and it's because I'm stuck in the past because I don't want to go through feeling all this stuff that I've gone through in the past. So I'm totally shortchanging myself of that present moment. And I believe that if we, if we are centered in the moment, then stress is nothing but you know, a figment of my imagination, just it's totally self-imposed. Do you believe it's real? So I, I think stress is real. You know, we could, we could hook up a bunch of nodes to your brain and we could kind of, you know, put you in a bucket over Niagara Falls, like you would stress, you know, <laughs> and there's no, there's nothing that can refute what's getting lit up in your brain that's mm -hmm. causing the stress. I think that where, where it gets a little tricky is that while we can't help the fact that we do get stressed, we can help the things that we get stressed about. So the way that we kind of lessen the amount of stress we incur is, you know, by addressing, like you said, you know, not thinking about a million things at once, morbid reflection about the past, um, not jumping into the future and trying to guess and analyze and prepare for all the mm -hmm. things that we have upcoming. Um, stress definitely occurs. But the, the fact of the matter is that, you know, these days we have less threatening things that stress us out. For example, cavemen had to protect their shelters and their families from like real predators. We mm -hmm. stress out when we see an ex on, you know, Instagram, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So like the threats are different, but the amount of brain activity is the same. Mm. So true. Mm -hmm. So true. So bringing it back to mindfulness, if one is mindful, and I'm not just talking like just Zen the fuck out like you had mentioned, but I'm talking like just mindful of certain things. It means that when stress does show itself, mm -hmm. you can process it through being mindful, correct? Yes. You know, and um, we talk about mindfulness as a practice because we do. We have to practice it just like David Goggins didn't become the athlete he was like from day mm -hmm. one. You know, he started from somewhere. Um, we have to practice it. And the more we practice it, the more it's familiar to us and the more um, connected we are to more of our inherent truth. You know, mm. there's so much that is going on around us all the time that we can identify with if we let ourselves or we can kind of get into the perception of this is stressful and when we simply pay attention to what we're doing when we're doing it, mm -hmm. because the mind and the body are connected, but the body gets confused when we start to think about things that are going on in the past because it's mm -hmm. not there with us anymore, you know? And right. when trying to prepare for the future, we get tension because it's, it's not right in front of us. It's something we're creating in our imagination. And mm -hmm. so when the mind and the body can be connected in the present moment, there's less of that tension accumulating, you know, or being re-remembered. Mm. So you, um, 
I was just thinking about like there was a time that there there was this house I had at one time. It was a, a sober living, if you will. I was a house manager. It was connected to a treatment center. It was in Newport Beach, and these guys would come back from their group. There was a mindfulness group that they had. They would bring their mindfulness packets back to the house. They would sit down in the living room. I'd say, "We got to have a house meeting. This place is a mess. There's." There's a bunch of stuff in the sink. There's, you know, like you didn't sweep. Nobody did their chores, this, that, and the other. Let's all sit down and talk about this. And I gave them this big spiel about being mindful and the fact that if you just pay attention to stuff and don't just run out the door and you remember, you take a look back and see what you may have forgotten and what you got to pay attention to. Like we got to make sure that this house is in order. And, you know, the most amazing thing is after that whole soapbox presentation of talking to these guys about 20 minutes after they all went down to the beach because we lived on the beach i look and i'm like thinking look at all their mindfulness packets were left behind they didn't even hear a word i said like they're not mindful and i think about like before we started the presentation you said to me i want to give props to your mom for always saying thank please and thank you right i believe that we we when i pay attention to my words and the way that i say things it's not what I'm saying. It's how I'm saying it. It's not how I'm, if I'm making a demand of somebody, then they feel intimidated or they feel like they're being talked down to. But if I ask someone, can you please like not do that? Thank you very much. You know, something like that along those lines. And I'm just kind of going through the motions of like what I'm trying to say. But mm -hmm. It's it, when I when you attach a please or a thank you that's genuine and, and it's meaningful and like you say it like you mean it rather than just say it to be a smart ass or to be condescending or something like that. If you say it like in a way where you really mean it, then I'm paying attention to that and I'm saying and I'm not saying that I I'm mindful of everything I do. There's a lot of times where I will forget certain things like when it comes to diet. I'm not mindful of the way I'm eating. I'm not mindful of the way I'm taking care of my body or exercising. Mm. I, I think to myself, I want to go to yoga. I haven't been to yoga in months, even with the, like everything opening up. And I, and I know I need to do that. Oh, my back hurts, but I'm not being mindful of how my body's connected to, to my, my uh, mind and to my spirit because uh, I'm not really paying attention. So I, I love that, that, that we were talking about this today. And I want to know what do you do to help people become more mindful? Like what, is it a practice that you do? Is it through yoga or do you actually do like mindful meditation type groups? Tell me. So a little bit of all of it. Please tell me. <laughs> so, um, you know, some, some friends I have, you know, are noticing that they have herniation um, of discs, they're, they're feeling sciatica pain, you know, because life has brought them into a place where they have to sit and work from home and then be at home. And um, that to me, like everything essentially comes back to mindfulness. You know, how I teach it in recovery is I teach it as a coping skill. You know, like when I got sober, life was absolutely overwhelming. You know, and I needed what and whatever I could find and connect to that was going to help me to cope with life and figure out a way to soothe this like terrifying world I had woken up to. Um, and so, you know, it, it really depends on the audience. And what I try to do is I try to bring mindfulness into each situation that I'm in, in a way that's appropriate, you know, like for put me in a room with a bunch of stress, <laughs> the stress is real. So I, um, I think about those with the, the disc herniation, um, what a great opportunity to learn to become mindful pain is presenting in a way that it's impossible to not pay attention to the present moment because mm -hmm. you have something right here, right now that needs your attention. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that, that life okay. has these kinds of opportunities for us all the time. The thing is Boy, that, that we become so useful um, taking for granted, like how beautiful a flower is and how good it smells. You know, and so when they say stop and smell the roses, it's it's really true that like it's not just a saying, it's like really pay attention to that the way you're smelling it. Yeah, yeah. And so um, you know, mindfulness comes into play 
in really any situation where where stress is involved, morbid self-reflection, you know, freaking out about the future. Um, so so yeah, it's a lot of different ways, but I don't, you know, approach each situation with this lens of like, okay, the answer is meditation, because I don't think that mindfulness has to strictly meditative experience in the way that we know it of like sitting down, being quiet, closing our eyes, listening to our breath. I think that mindfulness mm -hmm. is really about giving your brain and your body the chance to sync up so you can address what is right here and right now. You know, a lot of times in, in kind of my closing meditations for yoga classes, I'll talk about how, you know, when we're thinking about the past, like really our, our memories are only alive in our imagination, you know, and the same is, is with looking into the future. You know, when I'm, when I'm trying to guess what's going on in the future, it's, it's my creativity. It's my mind that's trying to guess what's going to come before me. I don't really know with certainty what it's going to be. And so the best chance I have at like living and really experiencing the present moment is to be paying attention to what is right here and right now. That's it. That like, yeah. The most important time. Mm -hmm. Right here, right now. Because we yeah. don't really know what's going to happen next. Right. And the question I always get that I find so interesting is like, well, if I just pay attention to right here, right now, how will I you know, get my vacation planned and how will I make any money in business? How will I go to work? And, you know, to answer that, I would just say like, okay, sit for a little bit and breathe. Eventually you're going to have to go to the bathroom. Eventually you're going to get thirsty. Eventually you're going to get hungry. Like our bodies when asked to be still are not just going to stay still indefinitely. You know, mm -hmm. we are creatures who move, we innovate, we breed, we create, you know, that that is biologically a need for us just as much as anything else. And so, you know, things will happen, you know, right. no matter what. But if we pay mm -hmm. attention to what we're doing when we're doing it, we have the chance to approach each situation with all the energy that we have, you know, giving mm. it our, our, our whole self. Oh, that's deep. It's true. I love it. I love yeah. hearing this. And I think a lot of people are getting a lot out of this and can get a lot out of this. This is more of this type of stuff needs to be talked about. If you knew what I've been dealing with lately, I'm telling you, and it's not stuff that I can't really handle or process, but it's, it's, I'm constantly, trying to help people that are newer in the recovery process that have so many distractions. Sometimes it's relationships, you know, and they're not really paying attention to like what is good for themselves, but, but it's that instant like thrill seeking, want, wanting to feel good, really good. And it can be with a lot of different things. It can be with food. It can be with porn. It could be with sex with somebody, right? Whoever, or just making out or whatever. But it's like, I, I, I just wish that we as humans would be able to tap into that that sweet spot and be able to to pay attention to it and really know that uh, life is a lot more than what we think it should or could have been. You know, it, it's it's just so much more when we're actually uh, tapped into something greater than ourselves. And so that that brings me to this: we talk about mindfulness, we talk about meditation. A lot of us that go into the recovery path find something outside of ourselves something like that that's a greater power than ourselves like i don't really know where you stand with this i i know where i stand with it i had to tap into something which i very comfortably call god you know and i i personally like what started happening didn't happen right away like for about the first five years of my recovery it was very hard for me to meditate i mm -hmm. i had no problem praying when it was praying it was personally just between me and god it was basically a conversation between me and god me thanking god me not asking God for things, but this thanking and praying to God and praying for people and praying for people I don't really care for either too. Just to be like, to have that that soundness of mind and that peace, you know what I mean? But but when I would meditate, I just had all this chatter going on all the time and I couldn't just quiet my mind. And so like I, what ended up happening was 
I, I got into enough pain and something was happening and I was out of character in the way that I was living my lifestyle during that time, doing things that weren't in the sunlight of the spirit, doing things that my prayers had become uncomfortable. They almost felt like they were just a chore. And so one day I just realized I'm, I'm at a point right now where I got to do something and that falling off point where I said, that's it. I'm going to meditate today. I'm going to attempt to meditate because I don't do enough of this. I don't feel like I practice meditation in my in my ritual enough. Like I might do it every once in a while, but it's usually empty. But this particular time, what I did was close my eyes and I just went into this deep, like this state of like, like a trance to the point where I, I started to hear God's voice. Like, what would God sound like if God had a voice? What would God say? It's not even a matter of what you would sound like, but what would he say? And it was all loving, all encompassing, telling me that, and it was like th that thing that we li we listened for the answers where I, I was like, oh my God, just be quiet. Let the, the brain has quieted down. God is 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 controlling this this whole method, this whole whatever's going down, this experience, right? And I remember mm -hmm. like when I came out of that meditative state, I felt like I was hived. I looked for, I w opened my eyes and I saw my mom's picture on the mantle and my sister's picture on the other mantle. And I was like, this was a very godly experience. Mm -hmm. Like, I, this is beautiful. This is really, really good. And so me personally, what has become with meditation is, where I'm seeking the knowledge of God's will. And that's just me. Like people, there's a lot of people on the fence. There's a lot of non-God believers. There's the agnostic. There's the atheist. Respect to all of them. As long as you're helping humanity, you're doing God's work Work in my world, right? But, but I believe that when it comes to meditation, that is my personal time where I get to encounter God. So do you have any kind of similar experience to this? Okay. So probably my favorite story of what came to me through meditation is like, I was actually, I was a yoga teacher and still a cigarette smoker for, um, a few years in my recovery. And I, I um, I was feeling some guilt about it, you know, but I was also, um, just really having trouble quitting. And I remember sitting to meditate and I had just bought, you know, a couple packs of my cigarettes and I sat to meditate and I just like you, what I do when I meditate is I just kind of wait for the quietness to come. You know, when I, when I guide people through meditation, like I don't encourage them to get quiet because I think that's a lot to ask, especially for new, new meditators. But, mm -hmm. um, this particular day I hadn't meditated for a very long time and in, in a little while and I just laid and listened and what I heard um it's still hard for me to differentiate sometimes between a voice and just a knowing do you know what I'm saying like yes. sometimes in my gut I get this like knowing but I it sounded like a voice this time and it said you don't need to buy cigarettes anymore or you won't buy any more cigarettes and i was like saying to myself like what like where did that come from like that's weird <laughs> and then i started crying because i knew that the time had come for me to Quit become smoking. willing to let go of that particular habit and um I waited a little while and sat just with it and let myself kind of process after I came out of the meditation. And then I remember telling my husband, I was like, I think I'm going to stop smoking cigarettes. And he was like, what? And it was like very sudden. But after that, um, you know, with the exception of a friend dying and, and, you know, kind of wanting to grab for something, I, I haven't smoked since. Powerful. Makes me emotional. Mm -hmm. And, and I like, you know, the way that you put it is like, for me, you know, I pray and I kind of present my, my requests, you know, it's kind of my way of like feeling like I get to contribute to this co-creation that's going on in my life. Um, mm -hmm. But when I meditate, I feel like I get reminded again of what I'm here for, 
and what life is really about, you know, because a lot of the awarenesses that come forward for me in meditation, they don't feel like new information. They mm -hmm. feel like my soul is being reminded of things that I've always known. I just haven't been present to, you know, in a while, hmm. you know, and as I've meditated, like you were talking about how, you know, your, your residents were not being mindful and they seemed to hear what you were saying and then went straight to the beach. And it's like, you know, meditation teaches me how to listen because hmm. I have to like, shut the fuck up for a little while. Yeah. Um, meditation teaches me that I'm made of the same cells that, um, you know, anything like a fake flower, like the same type of matter that is in everything is also me. You know, the air that I mm -hmm. breathe in, I'm, I'm needing from this universe and I'm also giving to it. You know, like I feel neutralized, like evened, like leveled, right sized through this path of meditation that and, and mindfulness that I don't, I don't get to make demands. You know, I'm no more important. I am, I'm just one of, and who I am and what I have to say and what I think, like, it, 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 I am you, you know, and when, when we're in this like really connected place, we see these similarities between each other and we connect and we relate and we, you know, find safety. And, and there's so much that happens as a result mm -hmm. of being humbled and realizing like you're important, I'm important. And all of this is here because we are. Right. Right. Very well said. Well, this has been fun. This has been really good. You know, I'd be vibing with you for a long time. Like we were very like-minded. It's so nice to be able wow. to have a conversation with somebody who, who gets it and gets me and I get you. And it's, it's what a pleasure it's been to have you on here today. Is there anything else that you want to say before we sign off and sign out? Oh, I just, I just want to thank you. I guess I just want to thank you for, for all you do and for how hard you work and you know you have this great big heart for recovery and you you give so much of yourself and i'm just i'm for you do and these visions that you have and the legs that you put to these visions that you have to like let these things go in motion and then you know also at the same time just kind of let whatever happens happen and um and I, I, I likewise very much appreciate you, you know, and all that that you're doing in this community. And um, and it's just it's neat to also meet people who've been lit up with this insatiable desire to help. It's really refreshing. Oh, I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, namaste. <laughs> have a lovely rest of your day i'll see you later on tonight you too. and thanks for Sounds coming good. to the corner thank Talk you, you bye